Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm good babe, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm uh, pretty buzzing after our lovely win at the British Podcast Awards. Well, it actually wasn't a win, it was a bronze, but <laughs> I'm counting that as a win. Pump it up. Yeah. I, I did a literary talk the other day and I, for some reason, announced it to all of the students. That Amazing. We, it was very embarrassing. Did you say that we got gold? No, I said bronze. You didn't flat out lie. I <laughs> no, hope. no, no. I told the truth. Always tell the truth. No, we're really happy about it. It's a lovely thing. So thanks for everyone's support. Yes. Thank you very much. And... We have a really great show today, I think. Yeah, um, me too. At least it is a theme very close to this little country mouse's heart. It is small towns in literature. Yeah, I'm way out of my comfort zone, this show. I know, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> I think we might have some genuine literary friction. Dun, dun, dun. For the first time ever. But for the anyway, first time ever. Yeah. Um, whether it's Jefferson, Mississippi in the novels of William Faulkner, or Coastal Maine in Elizabeth Strout's Olive Kittredge, or even Tokens the Shire, the small, tight-knit community has provided fertile ground for novelists. And we do have a really special show today because last week we interviewed the acclaimed author John McGregor at the Darby Book Festival. His latest novel, Reservoir 13, is about a girl's disappearance from a small village, hence the theme, in the Peak District in England and the aftershocks it leaves in that community for years to come. Uh, Before we go any further, do you want to introduce John a little bit more? Of course, Carrie. Of course I do. (laughs) Always. (laughs) Always. Um, John McGregor is the author of four novels and a story collection. He's the winner of the IMPAC Dublin Literature Prize, the Betty Trask Prize and Somerset Maugham Award. And he's twice been longlisted for the Man Booker Prize. His latest novel, Reservoir 13, won the Costa Novel Award and the Fiction Book of the Year at the British Book Awards. Many awards for this man. (laughs) Um, He's a professor of creative writing at the University of Nottingham, where he edits the Letters Page, a literary journal in letters. He was born in Bermuda in 1976, grew up in Norfolk and now lives in Nottingham. And it was a real pleasure to meet him. Yes, total, total pleasure. So today you'll hear our interview with John McGregor in front of a live audience and all of the excitement that that brought to the room. Um, Then we'll come back to the studio and down to earth to talk about the theme of small towns and literature more generally. And then we will also give you the usual book recommendations. So if you want to listen as we resist the overwhelming urge to quote lyrics by Journey and John Cougar Mellencamp, then stay with us for the next hour of literary friction. I have no idea who that guy is. What? John Cougar Mellencamp? Yeah. You know the song. Do I? Well, it's called Small Town. No, babe, I avoid all things small town. I was born in a small town. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <No>? you. <laughs> Uh, here's John McGregor. So I think what we're going to do to start is to ask John to do a reading from his latest novel, Reservoir 13. So, John, do you want to start with a reading? Uh, good evening, everybody. It's a beautiful day today, and Derbyshire is in fine form. I've been out cycling. Anyway, this so, so Reservoir 13 is set in Derbyshire, as some of you may know. Um, and it's set across 13 years, and I have here the script for a full 13-year reading, which I'm not going to do now because they told me to only do five minutes. Um, so I'm just going to read a couple of short pieces from the, the very first chapter of the book. Yeah, so from the first month and then from about the, the halfway through the year. Um, it's a book about a... Oh, I'm not going to tell you about it because we're going to talk about it now. Um, I'm just going to read because it's the start of the book and you should be able to pick it up as if you just picked the book up yourself. At midnight, when the year turned, 
There were fireworks going up from the towns beyond the valley, but they were too far off for the sound to carry, and no one came out to watch. The dance of the village hall was cancelled, and although the Gladstone was full, there was no mood for celebration. Tony closed the bar at half past the hour, and everyone made their way home. Only the police stayed out in the streets, gathered around their vans or heading back up into the hills. In the morning, the rain started up once again. Water coursed from the swollen peat beds quickly through the cloughs and down the step paths which fell from the edge of the moor. The river thickened with silt from the hills and plumed across the weirs. The police arranged a reconstruction, bringing actors over from Manchester. There had been no leads and they wanted to make a fresh appeal. The press were allowed up to the hunter place and given instructions on where to stand and what to film. The day was clear and edged with frost. The press officer asked for quiet. The door of the barn conversion opened and a couple in their early 40s appeared, followed by a 13-year-old girl. The woman was slim, with blonde hair cropped neatly around her ears. She was wearing a dark blue raincoat and tight black jeans tucked into calf-length boots. The man was tall and angular, with wiry dark hair and a pair of black-framed glasses. He was wearing a charcoal grey anorak, walking trousers and black shoes. And the girl looked tall for 13, with dark blonde hair to her shoulders and a well-acted look of irritation. She was wearing black jeans, a white hooded top, a navy body warmer and canvas shoes. The three of them got into a silver car which was parked outside the barn conversion and drove slowly down to the road. The photographers ran alongside. At the visitor centre, the actors waited for the photographers to get into place before climbing out of the car and setting off towards the moor. The girl lagged behind, and three times the actors playing her parents turned and called for her to hurry up and join them, and three times the girl responded by kicking at the ground and slowing a little more. The two adults held hands and walked ahead, and the girl quickened her pace. This sequence of events had been drawn from police interviews. It was later confirmed. The two adults kept walking until they'd gone over the first rise and dropped out of sight. And a few moments later, the girl dropped out of sight as well. The cameras photographed the empty air. The press officer thanked everyone for coming. The three actors came back down the hill. Work started up at the cement works again and the roads were silvered with dust. The freight trains came shunting through the hill and around the long bend between the trees. A pale light moved slowly across the moor, catching in the flooded cloughs and ditches and sharpening until the clouds closed overhead. In August, the bilberries came out on the heath beyond the Stone Sisters and a group went up from the village to pick them. The fruits grew sparsely and there was a need to keep moving and stooping across the ground. It felt less like a harvest than a search. The days were long and still, and there was a guilt in just walking the hills with the sun blazing down, and some people worked harder than others to not let that guilt keep them away. It helped to avoid the path past the hunter place, was one feeling. The girl's mother was still there. She was rarely seen, but her presence was felt. The path climbing up round the back of the barn conversions had thickened with grasses, with so few feet trampling it down. The occasional photographer still crept up there in the early dew, but they were soon spotted and brought down, their trousers wet with seed heads and burrs. Always men, these ones. Nothing to arrest them for. 
It was usually Stuart Hunter who found them. He wasn't a man for confrontation, but on this he would give no ground. They were never told twice. Jess Hunter wondered where he found this strength of purpose when it was often otherwise lacking. She wondered if he felt something towards the girl's mother beyond the responsibilities of a host. But it seemed unlikely. He wasn't a man for something like that. Once he'd sent them away, he would come back into the house, pacing and breathless, and she sometimes had to hold him to calm him down. It reminded her of the adrenalised state he would get into after rowing events back at university. Sometimes the energy of it would carry them into the bedroom, but more often it would send him charging into his work, hammering through a day of spreadsheets and phone calls and heated conversations with staff. And still, beyond the Hunter place, there were reminders of the girl's disappearance all over the hill. The flowers at the visitor centre, the new fencing around the mine shafts, the barking of dogs along the road. Most people stayed away altogether and took their walking to the reservoirs or the edge of the quarry or further to the deep limestone dales in the south where the butterflies rose like ash on the breeze and the ice cream vans still appeared. Thank you very much for that reading John long. no that's <laughs> fine. I told him beforehand that I got bored after five minutes when people did readings which is true it is true yeah glaze over. Um, no no that was not boring and actually it was making me think um that I would love to read this book again because having experienced all of these stories um over the course of 13 years and all of these characters that you've written about um you forget all of those little details at the very beginning. And I, I, I noticed new things about them that, that I could have only noticed from reading the whole book. So it was actually really nice to hear you read that. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. um, but so this book begins with a girl going missing from a small town in rural England. And it's a very well-known trope and it's often used to lured ends in fiction. Um, I wouldn't call this a lured book, but... Um, there are associations with the idea of a young girl going missing. So why did you want to use that jumping off point? And was there anything you wanted to avoid when you were writing about it? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wanted to avoid doing it at all, really. Um, <laughs> it seems like a really bad idea and it seemed like a real cliche and it seemed problematic in, in lots of ways. Um, and I think lots of the writing of the book was me trying to work around that because the starting point for me wanting to write, um, well, initially a short story and then that grew into, into this novel, was not so much the disappearance of the girl, but the, the idea of the search party and the idea, <coughs> you, you see it on the news fairly regularly, that somebody disappears and, and the police ask, I don't know, a hundred villagers to, to come and kind of spread out in a line across a, a moor or a hillside or a beach or wherever it is. And, um, and I was really struck by the kind of by the kind of logistics of that, the practicality of that, like what what that experience would be like to be one of those people who you go out first thing in the morning and the police are there giving you instructions and you feel ever so important and responsible and you're kind of you know really aware of the, the kind of tragedy of, of, of whatever the situation is. And then you're walking for hours and hours and hours across wet moorland and your shoes get wet and you get bored and you start having conversations with the people around you and you start worrying about how long it's going to take and then you feel guilty about worrying about that and i just was really kind of struck by that as a as a kind of jumping off point for for a story um and then i, I wrote a short story based around that and um 
And by the time I finished that, I had like handfuls of characters that I wanted to to play with. So, so in a way, the fact of the of the girl disappearing is is a kind of a kind of inconvenience <laughs> right at the beginning that that I was keen to to work around. It's a very it's a very effective centrifugal point for the rest of the community, and th I mean that's the thing that really struck me when I read your, your book. It's very technically complicated in that you are inhabiting the minds of such a wide cast of characters and over the course of 13 years as well. So you've got this vast expanse of time and also consciousness. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about what the process was like about finding these characters and you know who they were and do you like them all? Um, yeah, how long have we got? <laughs> Go for your life. Um, <laughs> It, 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 it was a quite complicated, no, I mean, that sounds a bit grandiose. It was quite an involved process, um, the kind of construction of the book. And um, I realized really early on that one of the things I wanted to do was make this um, a book about abundance. And, and I was reminded about that, of that today, actually, when I was out on my bike. You know, June is a particularly abundant time of year. Um, but I was really conscious of wanting to have, make this... So it's a small village that the story's set in. But even in a small village, there are two or 300 people. You know, and, I, and I wanted not necessarily to come up with 300 characters, but, but certainly to give an impression that this is a populated place and not just do that thing of having two or three characters and then just a whole bunch of extras in the background. Um, and I was also very conscious of not knowing enough myself about village life, about... Um, working practices in the countryside, um, just about nature at all, basically. Um, and I knew I wanted to kind of populate that that properly. So, so one of the things I did was come. I came up with this idea. I got quite hooked on the, on the idea of the number thirteen. Um, initially, because I, I when I when I wrote the short story, initially the the missing girl was a five year old, and when I came to turn it into a novel, I realised that making her older would make it more complicated because, you know, if there's a teenager who disappears, there are, there's a bigger range of options that of what might have happened, where she might have gone. Um, and I wanted her to kind of have her own agency. Um, so I made her a 13-year-old, and then I thought, okay, great, now I'm, I'm on a roll with the number 13. And so I, the book's set across 13 years, and there are 13 months in every year in the book. Um, and there were 13 reservoirs, and I just kind of... It became a kind of touchstone for me of, of the idea of plenty. So, so rather than thinking, okay, I need a handful of jobs that I'm going to research, I'm going to look into sheep farming and um, uh, gamekeeping and what it's like being a doctor, uh, that will do. I, I made myself do 13 of, of everything. So that it just it kind of came across to me as this, this image of abundance and, and, and detail. Um, so I spent a really long time kind of researching and sketching and developing characters and developing scenes and locations and storylines and making sure that there was always 13 of, of everything. Um, and I can go on to tell you about how I yeah. then put the book together because it's... Please do. Well, I read, I read in an interview that you wrote all of the stories and then cut them all up and mm. put them together. Yeah. It wasn't as kind of planned and methodical as 
I like to make it sound. But one of the things that happened was while I was, while I was doing some of that research, especially some of the research I knew I didn't need, I knew I didn't need a lot of research, and I didn't want it to be a book that was me showing off about what I'd learned about Derbyshire. Um, but I knew that I wanted um, a small amount of detail about a lot of things. So, so say, for example, I don't know, I, look, I looked into blackbirds. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to come up with one fact from each month of the year about blackbirds. And just in the process of kind of checking that out and writing it down, I kind of found I was writing the sentences that I was probably then going to use in, in the book at a later date. And so that became my kind of research method, was, was finding the facts, but at the same time writing them up as sentences that I was going to go on and use. So I was finding 13 interesting things about blackbirds, um, hence the Wallace Stevens quote at the start of the book, 13 things about foxes and badgers and snow and you know all sorts. Um, and then as I started developing the characters and storylines, I, I, I worked on the same process. So um, I don't know, say with um, the Jackson family, I, I took their storyline and kind of split it into 13 short sections and, and gave myself a rough idea of how that was going to be broken down across the years. Um, but did all of that writing out of sequence, did all of that first before I started working out where it was all going to fit, um, which was then a very kind of fiddly, complicated, messy process, but was, was also a lot of fun because it meant uh, while I was doing all the writing, I was only thinking about the sentences, and while I was doing all the putting it together, I was only thinking about the structure and the pace. It was quite liberating. And I wanted to, to ask you about your decision to have the voice being kind of passive, um, because it leads to this idea of almost a collective consciousness in this group of very disparate people, different ages, different, as you said, professions and things. Um, and this idea that people are being described as being seen or observed, so that, that there is this omnipresent perspective, obviously. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about that, because it sounds like this experience of things being chopped up and kind of put together, it seems like lots of very separate threads, but actually there's an incredibly cohesive logic to it, obviously. But that passivity, was that a very conscious decision? Um, yeah, it was, and, and again, I. I I rather kind of stumbled on it quite early on. Um, and I think I was drawn to it. I was drawn to it partly because you get told not to write in the passive voice and to always use active sentences. And as soon as somebody tells me about a writing rule, I'm like, right, I'm going to try doing the opposite, see what happens. Um, but also, you know, this, this was not a state of the nation novel or a novel about Englishness or anything like that. But it did strike me quite early on that, that there's something very English about passiveness and that passive voice, and 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 especially a lot of the a lot of the narrative description is told in that kind of so and so was seen leaving somebody's house, or so and so it had been said that somebody was doing, and this kind of it's all gossip, but nobody's taking ownership of the gossip. Nobody's saying I saw somebody, or or you'll never guess what so-and-so said it's always this kind of neutral like it's just a fact it's like the passing weather we we know that um joe gordon whoever came out of somebody's house at six o'clock in the morning it's just known like and there's no kind of ownership of that um 
which I found I found really interesting, and um, yeah, it became a a kind of unifying tone for things. You say you're not trying to write a novel about Englishness, but this did feel very English to me, and it did seem to say, at least to me, something very profound about about Englishness, but also about just ordinary life and the way that this novel elevates mundanity was one of the things that I loved most about it, that, you know, the disappearance of this girl is put alongside somebody planning the yearly panto, which is put alongside a fox emerging from a hole and which is put alongside somebody doing the dishes. And and maybe that is a particularly English thing. I mean, I guess everyone goes about everyday life, but the sort of the way that you showed what these people were doing and how they were interacting with each other. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. That is what I was trying to do. Yeah, um, and I am. <laughs> I am really interested in mundanity, um, and I'm really. I think mundane details are are really key to to creating a sense of place and a sense of um, character. Um, I'm not sure if that interest in mundanity or love of mundanity is an English thing, but I think. I hope that by paying attention to those mundane details, I was painting a picture of an English village. Um, I think there are some, I'd like to think there are certain details in the book that make it very specifically an English village. Um, you know, right down to the casual racism um, yeah. and the warm beer and the cricket. Um, but yeah, I wasn't, I, be, I became aware about halfway through that there was there was a kind of risky pathway labelled State of the Nation. Um, luckily, Brexit hadn't happened before I finished the book, so I was, at no point was tempted to write like a Brexit novel. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think I'd, in all my writing, I, I, and in my reading, I'm incredibly wary of a novel with a purpose. You know, I, I, I tend to feel like. In a novel, the characters sh should be the purpose. The story should be the purpose, and anything else that kind of bubbles up should be a, a, a side effect of that. The theme of our show um, for literary fiction is actually inspired by your book, Small Towns in Literature, which is, as as I'm sure you're aware, a, a, a long tradition mm -hmm. um, of really wonderful books. Um, and I think this really sits in that tradition. I'm just interested to know what you think is useful about a small group of people living in a small place in terms of what you can do in fiction and, and what you can depict about humanity and about the world. There's something quite attractive when you're building a world um, about being able to see the, the edge of the world. Um, and I guess you know, people don't necessarily think about uh, literary novelists, um, for want of a better word, um, as kind of world building, you can, it's more of a kind of sci-fi term. But actually, you know, every time you start a new story, you're, you're creating a new world, even if it's based on on an existing place. You're still kind of populating it with your own people, um, and and yeah, I mean, with with this book in particular, I had a lot of fun with kind of knowing exactly where the edge of the village was and what the relationship of that village was with the other village on the other side of the hill, and and you know, who had lived there the longest and who was, had arrived more recently and, and being able to picture the whole place in, in one go in my, in my mind was, 
it's just easier to do that and it, it you, you kind of want a novel to be reasonably self-contained and and just in practical terms it's easier to do that with a small a small community but also i was really interested in you know with a community this small in particular um what that means to 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 be seen by by the people around you so kind of clearly you know if you do leave somebody's house at six o'clock in the morning somebody notices and word gets around you know that that the kind of thing that, does, that doesn't happen in a city um that was really interesting well and the way that plays out over time as well because i mean one of my favorite kind of groups of characters in the novel are the teenagers mm -hmm. because their experience was I mean, I, I identified so profoundly with it, obviously, I'm not a teenager anymore. <laughs> but, you know, those years are so formative and so kind of profoundly they stay with you. Um, but I love the way that, you know, we see them grow up just as we see the elderly age and die, some of them. And um, this idea that you're in a community that watches you through those experiences, kind of mutely in, in a way. It's non-judgmental, essentially. Um, for someone who grew up in a city. <laughs> it's quite an alienating idea, but kind of exciting. Um, and it plays into that idea about sort of surveillance. But what you were saying about the edge of the world, I wanted to ask you because you, you, you extended the edge of the world after the novel was written with the Reservoir Tapes, which you recorded for Radio 4. Um, and I wanted to ask you why you decided to do that and how that came about and what that process was like. Um, they asked me to. <laughs> well, they, a producer from Radio 4 contacted me and said, we're setting up this new slot um, for short stories. We want to do more short stories on, on Radio 4. Um, and we're going to do these series of long-running series of, of short stories. Um, so we want 15 short stories of 15 minutes long. Um, but they all have to be, they have to be standalone stories which exist as part of a bigger kind of whole. So they have to be linked in some way, but they also have to stand alone. I said, well, that sounds quite interesting. How soon would you want them? And they said, oh, in about six months. And I said, well, I probably can't do that. Um, but then I was thinking about it, and it was a really exciting proposition. And you know, I did some writing for radio years ago um, before I'd had anything published. Um, and I'd always wanted to come back to it because there's something very different about writing for The Voice for, for radio. And... And I was thinking, well, you know, it takes a lot to kind of to build a world, you know, to come up with a with a concept that is going to support um, this this notion of of having stories that can stand alone but can still exist as part of a whole. And I'm going to have to come up with a landscape and a whole set of characters. And what what am I going to how am I where am I going to get that from? Um, and then, you know, I was kind of sat on my desk, kind of panicking about where I could get all these ideas from. And then, you know, my all my kind of drafts for Reservoir 13, which was just um, in the final editing stage at that point, we just kind of sat there and I thought, oh yeah, I've got all of these characters still to hand. Um, so I did, yeah, I, I pitched that idea to them. So yeah, it was it was a big challenge, um, but it was it was really exciting. So, so what I did was picked some of the characters from the novel, came up with some new characters um, to live in the village and set these 15 stories in the, basically in the kind of six months before Becky goes missing. Um, so the first story kind of describes her, her disappearance and then it, it kind of backtracks a bit. Um, and it was a chance to revisit the characters and it was especially a chance to revisit 
Becky herself and her parents. And I, I deliberately made them very kind of opaque in the book. Um, and it was quite nice to kind of, to go back to them and to, to make Becky a real person. What did you find you had to do to adjust your writing to the audio format? Um, I had to simplify it um, in, in a good way, I hope. Um, I was really conscious that listening is very different from reading. And when you hear something, especially when you hear something on the radio and maybe you're in the middle of doing something else at the same time, you don't get a second chance to kind of glance back up the page and, and pick up the thread if the sentence was too long or too complicated or you know the information just wasn't conveyed clearly enough. You, you, you have to get it first time. And I was also really conscious of the fact that whenever I hear a piece of fiction or drama coming on Radio 4, my hand kind of hovers quite near the <laughs> off switch quite, quite quickly, um, unless something kind of grabs me. You, you, you know, if you're listening to something you were expecting to listen to, I don't know what, what was on, on, this went out on Sunday evening, so I guess probably The Archers was, was on not long before. Um, and then this weird story comes on that you're not expecting to hear. There has to be something in that first line that stops you from turning it off. And then there has to be something in the second line that keeps you listening. The last thing I wanted to ask you is, after I read this book, there were there were a few of the characters that really sort of stayed inside me. Sue Cooper um, has really has really stayed with me. Um, me too. Who is a, a sort of young mother who works at the BBC uh, and c moves out to the town when she marries uh, the Austin. Austin, the the head of Austin the newspaper. Cooper. Ah. <laughs> Um, I was going to say it, and uh, <laughs> and and really struggles with motherhood as well. But it's um, I, I I was very moved by her her story. Um, also, the vicar Jane Hughes, um, who is felt like um, like the human model of kindness, not in an unreal way, but in a in a very moving and touching way. So I wonder if there are any of the characters, and and you might not have this as a writer yourself, that you either particularly liked or just have particularly stayed with you even after the project has ended, who you feel coming back to you? Jeff, Jeff the Potter. I always had a soft spot for him. Um, partly because, and this, this is not a great thing to admit and is not something I usually do, but there was the place I was living while I did most of the writing of this book, um, there was a man who had a whippet who walked it about four times a day up and down the street and had this very kind of slow loping stride and he was my model for, for Jeff the Potter. Um, but he's, he's, he's such a minor character in the book, but I, like as soon as I, I think the first sentence about him I wrote was, was Jeff Simmons walks a slow whippet and I just, I liked the rhythm of the mm. sentence and I just had a picture of him immediately and it was just really exciting to kind of just know who he was and know that he lived in this stupid little studio and was always trying to sell his pots but didn't like people coming in to buy the pots and I, I just like on the one hand I feel like I could probably write a whole novel about him and on, on the other hand I like the fact that that's all just in the background. There's a bit that's really stuck with me which is exactly that where the woman comes in and he's he he wants her to buy something and he knows if he looks up at the wrong time he'll scare her off but then he also doesn't want it was brilliant yeah it's interesting that you say it because he he, uh, he sticks with me also. I like whippets too. Right, good. <laughs> it's interesting that he's the artist as well. So obviously you feel a sort of affinity with him, maybe. 
Maybe he's not to psychoanalyze or anything. But <laughs> yeah. So that is it. Um, John McGregor, thank you so much for being here with us. And Darby, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I'd really recommend that everyone here who hasn't already read Reservoir 13 to, to read it because it is like nothing you'll ever read and it has stayed with me. Um, so thank you very much. And thank you to the Derby Book Fest for yes, having thank us. You. It's been such a pleasure to yeah. be here. Thank, thank you. Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright in the studio, and we are going to talk about today's theme, which is the small town in literature. Now, first, I want to just say that I am really excited to talk about this theme, mainly because I think this is genuinely a place where our tastes diverge quite, time. quite seriously. Mm. Um, and we might even have some, as I said in the intro, real literary friction, which is a sort of ironic name for our show because we never really disagree <laughs> with each other. But I'm, you know, I've put my boxing gloves on. I'm ready to, to fight for the small town. She's had two lemonades. <laughs> yeah. She's really bad. I have had two lemonades. <laughs> and they were like sugary lemonades as well. I'd go with it. I'm but, enjoying it. You know, this is the thing. I love, when I think about my taste in literature, actually... I love novels about small towns. Yeah, I, you do. And, and it's because I think I love novels about ordinary life and the ordinary in its extraordinariness. Yeah. Um, so, you know, authors I talk about on the show all the time, Elizabeth Strout, Marilyn Robinson, you know, I did a dissertation on William Faulkner. I think they all have this in common, which is that they are writing about small communities of people and ordinary people whose lives become a sort of microcosm and a representation of humanity. But you feel differently, don't you? Well, no, do you know what? It's not that I feel differently. I wouldn't disagree with anything that you just said. I just don't choose those narratives. I don't find them a place that I like to spend time. I often find the small town in literature and in anywhere else quite a depressing place to spend time. Um, and it can make me feel very hemmed in. The books that I love tend to be about really big ideas. And it's not to say that you can't tackle big ideas from within a small town, because you absolutely can, and the writers that you just mentioned absolutely do. And I think Elizabeth Strout is an extraordinary writer, and Faulkner, and Robinson. Um, but they are never... They're the books I read when people give them to me. Um, they're never the books I'm drawn to myself, because there's something about humanity, the daily grind of humanity that I find fucking disappointing <laughs> and so it's not when I'm in my thought life it's not where I like to be I like to be in um stories that are surreal or challenging in different ways or are phil deeply philosophical there's something about the proximity of the small town that I just find very suffocating yeah. but it's ironic because I've just moved to a small town um, and so I'm living this like small town life. <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's very strange. It's very strange. I mean, I don't think I'm going to stay for very long. But it's you know, it's an interesting. When I was thinking about this show, and I was thinking about the things about this literary trope that make me feel uncomfortable, I was realizing they're kind of playing out in my real life at the moment yeah. as well, which is this fascinating thing. Yeah, um, I I think that that really is a great way to s describe your own taste. And I think I love novels that reflect experience um and an experience that seems somehow normal to me whereas i think you often reach towards the surreal and that's that's a place we both go and i wonder if it has something to do with our upbringings as well i mean i'm from a small town and you're from 
the big city. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from the big city and a lot of dysfunction. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I'm going to say that. <laughs> I think the thing about the thing that I find great comfort in the surreal, it feels comfortable to me. That's the thing that's different. Um, and the edgy and the kind of the almost threatening, emotionally threatening, feels more comfortable to me than small town realities. There's something about... Um, it can feel like small town narratives have a very, very low horizon, which is unfair, actually, because I know that philosophically what happens in these stories can be fascinating. But there is something genuinely, I think it's like the physical place that I find very unsettling. Yeah. However, when it comes to me through visual medium, I'm much more engaged. Although I say that I'm really only talking about Twin Peaks, which is obviously fundamentally <laughs> surreal and not really. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> yeah. let's move beyond that. Um, let's get to the books. Well, yeah, let's get to the books. Let's talk about what small towns can do in literature. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's worth talking about that suffocating um, element that you find about them because I think that is actually a theme. Mm. Um, and uh, I think small towns can either represent... A, a sort of suffocating claustrophobia or a safe space. And and I would say most novels and even nonfiction that deal with small towns usually have one of those two things at their heart or they're, or they're talking about both of those tropes at the same time. So yeah. there's, of course, you know, Rabbit Run by John Updike, um, which is all about the the claustrophobia of, of suburbia. Um, you know, I was I was actually having a harder time thinking about examples that just represent the small town as as a utopic ideal and the only thing that came to mind was was stars hollow from gilmore girls i was thinking of anne of green gables yeah yeah anne of green gables yeah. it's a very idyllic experience isn't it very safe yeah so maybe safety. it's more children yeah. children's novels that yeah don't problematize the, they don't the problematize tiny community. the town and they are able to be wholesome because they're not the city and with the city comes a lot of very unwholesome stuff um but yeah, you're right. I think a lot of the time there's a sense of, well, I mean, one of the things that's great about Elizabeth Strout's writing is that she she presents her small towns as places that are both suffocating and refuge for the people within them. So I think she really gets to the center of the complexity of these kind of communities and the fact that they can provide an enormous amount of safety, but also unsettling. I mean, I was thinking about J.K. Rowling as well, because, you know, the small towns that crop up in Harry Potter but you know, Hogsmeade or whatever is this safe space, isn't or it? whatever. Oh, so sorry. you don't know what it's called. <laughs> I know what it's called. I know what it's called. <laughs> I hold my hands up. Um, but I was thinking about that as well. It, it represents a space of safety as opposed to the wider world in those books, which represent a place of, of great threats, enormous threats. But also, when I was looking up things for the show, I, they kept the small town kept coming up in the context of American literature more than it's British literature, which I thought was very interesting. Because we actually, I suppose there's a lot of villages in Agatha Christie, for example, or like Jane Austen, you know, you're looking at small communities, but you're not necessarily looking at towns. They're, you know, the communities of great big houses and their upstairs, downstairs, you know, people within them or or a lot of a lot of villages and a lot of kind of country, you know, country communities, which is very different from the small town. The town is quite a specific thing, which seems to be more prevalent in American literature. Yeah, I was wondering that as well. And I I was wondering if that was just because my experience um, of reading tends more towards American mm. books but maybe that's right I mean I, I I did also think about um 
the small town often becomes a sort of cipher for this conflict that's played out for a long time in, in I think, American and British literature and world literature as well of the, of the city versus the country. And um, Raymond Williams wrote a brilliant book. He's a Marxist critic in 1973 called The Country and the City, which explores a lot of these things, which I obviously read in college when I was assigned it. Not not by choice, but it is brilliant. And um, And he makes, I think, a very convincing argument that many, many British novelists are concerned with this dichotomy between the country and the city, and also that the meanings have shifted over time, um, that sometimes the city is the virtuous good place and the country is where all the backwards people live, and at other times the, the country is a refuge while the city is a, is a den of sin. And I think actually that shifted in American literature a bit as well. Um, the city has become this sort of glorified space with all of these writers living in Brooklyn, whereas the country is is where all the Trump voters live. Mm. And I think there's a there's a reason why maybe not as many American novels being written now are about small towns. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's funny because I don't think about the small town as country. I think of it as inferior urban (laughs) which is so (laughs) dreadful but it's true it's really it's it's awful but it is true I think this this idea of the country though does also bring in the fact that when I was noticing when I was doing research on this when I was thinking about books about small towns most of these authors are white and most of the characters in the stories are white and um I think that's something that we need to acknowledge here about the privilege of of small town life and um and many books about small towns are also about outsiders coming in and not being welcome in small towns. Um, I recommended Celeste Ng's uh, Little Fires Everywhere about Shaker Heights, Ohio, um, which I think you know flips this narrative in, in at least in the fact that she's uh, a writer of color and it features the people of color. But even then, it's partially about how a community responds to a person of color. Um, and I, you know, I, I hope that changes. Yeah, me too, big time. I suppose. I mean, again, I feel very out of my depth talking about this trope in literature because because I'm not drawn to these kind of narratives. I haven't read a huge amount of books set in small towns. So I feel like I'm speaking from a place of great generalization. But I guess those the development of those narratives will change to reflect the development of those social centers. So as communities become more mixed across the board, as they seem to be, and I hope they continue to, to, to do so, then the narratives that come out of those places will continue to reflect that that change um well i do think that um one of the reasons why this form might remain relevant um is something that really comes out in reservoir 13 that we we talked to john mcgregor about which is this idea of a community being a sort of chorus of voices about about individualism versus um community and how those things always come up against each other in a town um and i think you know some of the best novels have been written using that technique and using Mm. that sort of feeling yeah I mean my favorite my favorite piece about a small town is Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood which I've talked about on the show before but he sets it in a place called Larragub which is bugger all spelled backwards and uh that is a it's a poem but it's a book-length poem where we you slide between the subjectivities of all these different characters and they it does kind of 
I thought about it when I was reading Reservoir 13, actually, because there, there are parallels between those texts in terms of their form. Um, but you do get that sense of a collective consciousness of a tightly knit community um, and how it functions as an organism, which is always really interesting. Yeah. And also just the power of gossip yeah. is so often at the heart of these books. Yeah. Um, it comes up in Reservoir 13. It comes up in The French Lieutenant's Woman, which I finally read. Um, thanks which to is your a recommendation. great book. Yeah. Well, I had some... You Issues did not. Yeah. Oh my god. Let me wait. I need to find my fucking what do you call them? Uh battle gloves. For my saddle gloves. <laughs> Boxing gloves. Boxing gloves. I'm just gonna get my sword, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um but I did think about that a lot. Um, you know, Jane Austen is is all about gossip, often set in small communities. Um, you know, Elizabeth Strout as well. It's about how we talk about each other and how what the community thinks of us contrasts with what who we are mm, yeah definitely. in our fundamental core and it is a really powerful driving force in society in general gossip and that yeah exactly how we act in the context of those around us so what is your favorite novel about a small town octavia well as you can imagine i found this quite difficult <laughs> and then i remembered um that i had read gilead by marilyn robinson after my mom gave it to me and uh and loved it i just i find these i tend to find these stories incredibly forgettable so i can really really enjoy them in the moment and then they're gone from my brain but i remember loving this Throwing as i read so it. much shade huh <laughs> <laughs> no I'm, i don't <laughs> i don't mean that to be shade it's just the, it's just my truth okay yeah <laughs> I'm speak a, your truth a forgetful woman um when things are not up to my standard <laughs> No, I'm, I'm teasing. I'm absolutely teasing. This is It's a phenomenal book. It's a beautifully written book. It's a novel written in the form of a letter from an ill father to a young son. The account of Reverend John Ames is 77 years on earth, mostly spent in a small town in Iowa. Um, and it's a really beautifully written look at these complexities and tragedies of a small town existence in America, um, which also I found quite fascinating because I'm not from small town America and it's not a part of the states that I know. I know New York City and that's kind of it. Um but yeah, they, I, I don't know why it didn't stick around in my brain. I, I, I really, I, I read it. I, I found it very interesting. I found the writing beautiful. And then it went out the other side. But I have to say a very sneaky second recommendation um, of a different kind of text. And I use this word deliberately because it doesn't actually exist on paper. It's only in audio format. But it's called Diane, the Twin Peaks tapes of Agent oh Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> and it's brilliant. It's it includes the recorded diary entries from some of the show's first season and then some specially written um, entries by Scott Frost, who worked as a screenfighter, screenfighter, screenwriter even on the show. And um, he wrote, actually wrote a book called The Autobiography of FBI Agent Dale Cooper, which I haven't read and probably never will. Um, but this this audio text is great. And it's narrated, of course, by Kyle McLachlan. Um, and he was actually nominated for a Grammy for it for best book or performance. Brilliant. But it's that's my that's my nod towards like a small town piece of literary text that I could really get behind. Yeah. And, you know, actually hearing you talk about that, I think we've made too much of a distinction between the surreal and the book about the small town, because I think those two things can totally go together. Oh, they absolutely and Twin can. And Twin Peaks is a, is a great example yeah, of that. Yeah, they absolutely can. I think that's the thing, though. I'm only interested in the small town if it's flipped on its head like that. Which is fine. Yeah. Okay. Speak your truth. All right. <laughs> so maybe actually I am more for this You're form. just a small town girl, you might say. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Okay. Um... I am going to, I, you know, I've mentioned some writers that I love already who write about small towns, but I think they're writers that I have already recommended on this show ad infinitum. Um, 
so I'm going to recommend something else that uh, hopefully British listeners won't be as familiar with. Um, it's called Spoon River Anthology. Have you ever I come know, across no, this? No, never heard of it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a 1915 work by Edgar Lee Masters. And it's a collection of over 200 what you might call sort of verse monologues um, by the residents of a small fictional town called Spoon River, which is in Illinois. Um, what makes these unique is they're all spoken from beyond the grave. Most of the characters are buried in the local cemetery. And this means that they are there to tell their truths um, and to tell their secrets and their deepest desires and their stories. Uh, and I was first introduced to it in high school drama class when I had to do one of the monologues. I was Elsa Wertmann, a German immigrant who was impregnated and had to give away her baby. Oh, my God. Poor Elsa. Yeah, poor Elsa. I think I did it very melodramatically, unfortunately. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, we young. Come on. <laughs> but it's a, re it's a really affecting piece of work. And it was incredibly inspirational. Um, it, you know, it inspired writers like William Faulkner. And I can definitely see echoes of it in George Saunders, Lincoln and the Bardo. Uh, and it's it's really beautiful, too. And I'd recommend, you know, you can go online and just read some of those monologues and just get a sense for it. Mm. So um, it's definitely of the small towns are not the idyllic places that they seem. Oh, interesting. School of writing. Sounds really good. Yeah, I'd recommend it. So we didn't really fight with each other at all there. No, I put my sword back no down. No friction. No friction. We'll have to wait another day for friction. I, yeah, I just, I don't. It's not our way. It's not our way. I don't way. like fighting. No, and also I respect your opinion. So I'm I gonna, really respect your yeah, opinion. I'm going to listen and I'm going to try and find a way through it. Okay. I'll tell you what would bring friction. What? If you came out swinging for day beggars. But you're never going to do gonna that. Not going to happen. <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe we should do that show. Just I do to see what happens. Yeah. Um, we'll be back in a moment with our book recommendations. Um, okay, so moving on from Reservoir 13, um, it is our tradition on literary friction to give book recommendations every month. And we always ask the author who comes on to give their book recommendation of a book that they've read and liked recently. So Octavia, do you want to go first? And then I'll ask you, John, to give your recommendation and then I'll, I'll give mine. Of course, with pleasure. Um, well, I, I'm going to sneakily make two because I've been hanging out a lot with T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland lately for a project I'm working on. <laughs> I've been I in a seance with T.S. Eliot. <laughs> She's trying to impress you, John. You I am, I'm trying to impress you. I've, um, I've got a direct line to T.S. Eliot. It's quite weird, actually. <laughs> anyway, I've been spending a lot of time with The Wasteland, and every time I go back to that text, I am reinvigorated by it. I love it very much. It's very dear to me. Um, but I, I just find it always very inspiring, and... Um, so live, but also I've, I've recently moved down to Margate, which is where T.S. Eliot wrote The Wasteland. So it's kind of living again outside and inside my, my mind. Um, but the, it, and it's been taking up a lot of space, as these kind of texts often do. It's an incredibly moody poem, so it's, it's like filling up all my mental capacity, apart from this one novel that's managed to elbow its way in, um, which I haven't yet finished. It's called The Department of Speculation by Jenny Offill, which was a huge deal when it was published and managed to miss me, kind of. Um, and a friend of mine lent it to me recently and said, you really have to read this book. I think you're going to absolutely love it. And I absolutely love it, even though I'm also finding it quite an uncomfortable reading experience. Um, 
it's very clever for anyone who doesn't know of it. Um, it's kind of about an internal emotional landscape of a, of a marriage and, uh, you know, two people, particularly from the perspective of this one woman who... who but her experience is presented in a series of fragmented paragraphs, so you're never drawn in in a traditional way, and they're more like vignettes, but they build up a really strong sense of an, of an internal landscape, which I think, I, I mean, I identify with very profoundly, and I think most people who read it would, because it's that way that thoughts function and the way they flip through, and they don't hang around for long enough sometimes for you to grasp them, but something is left behind that's profoundly illuminating. Um, and it's vying for attention with T.S. Eliot, and they're two very different voices, and one is profoundly feminine and one is profoundly masculine, and it's quite an interesting um, time <laughs> for my brain. Um, but yeah, I would recommend it really, really heartily. And, and I would say also, I mean, the main message of the text seems to be that the things that we think make us complete that come from external accolades or external um, even relationships actually can leave us all profoundly unsettled and unfulfilled because true contentment has to come from within. So there's quite a profound philosophical element at the core of it. But yeah, everybody should read it. I've been reading to read that forever. You um, can borrow it when I finish. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. I've read it already. Ah. <laughs> what did you think? I, I, I concur. Uh, uh, I think you. it's fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah, everyone should read it. Um, you just reminded me of something that happened. I was at the uh, book festival in Kerry um, this week and went to an event um, with Edna O'Brien, which was incredible. Um, Edna O'Brien, amazing Irish writer. He's, she's like 88 or something. She's, she's phenomenal. Um, not being old isn't phenomenal in, in itself, but... but um, I don't know, it's pretty good. Uh, yeah. She's also anyway, a phenomenal she, writer. She, um, she, she didn't name drop T.S. Eliot, but she did say, at one point in the conversation, she said, as Samuel Beckett once said to me, <laughs> which was good oh my god that's mic drop situation and then and then about 10 minutes later she said when, when I was once having dinner with Groucho Marx <laughs> and I was like yeah that was yeah that was impressive anyway so my am I allowed to recommend a book that hasn't been published yet yes, yes. okay so Melissa Harrison um, who you probably know of gone blank on the name of her last novel, but she's published Rain. some nature she essays as well. Rain. Oh, no, Rain that was, was the nature essay, essays, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, anyway, her yeah. new novel, um, I don't even know when it's out, but it's called All Amongst the Barley. Um, I just read an advance reading copy of it, and it is extremely good indeed. Um, it's set in the 1930s in, I think, Suffolk, um, and it's kind of a portrait of a very small village and it's a portrait of farming life um, but it deals with a couple of really big topics three big themes um, in an incredibly subtle way so it takes on British fascism it takes on um, the, the kind of the place of women at that time in British social life and it takes on psychosis and it manages to bring all of those up incredibly subtly and incredibly kind of woven into all these incredible descriptions of, of nature and of rural working life. Um, and I think, you know, she's, she's been a writer I've been kind of aware of for a while and I've been quite interested in her previous work, but this, this is like a huge jump up um, for her. I think it's going to be a big book. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I really loved Rain. I think she's a beautiful writer and she mm. writes so well about nature. I imagine that's a part of her novels as well yeah yeah but in a really kind of unshowy kind of just 
woven in way. It's, it's really impressive. I would like to recommend a book called Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin. I've spoken about James Baldwin before. I read his second novel, Giovanni's Room, about 10 years ago, and it has just stayed with me um, since then. It's about two men who fall in love in Paris, and um, right after the Second World War, it's this beautiful love story, but also just a really thoughtful book about what it means to go against what your society is telling you is the right thing to do. Um, and this is a very, very different book. It's, it was his first book. Um, it is a testament to his talent as a writer, I think, that it's such a different book because the pitch and the timbre is also timbre. How do you even say that word? I don't However know. However you like. Whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, it's very different. It, it is a, it's semi-autobiographical, as I understand it. It's about a boy growing up in Harlem in the 1930s um, whose father is a pastor, and it's about his relationship with his father, his relationship with the church, and his relationship with his community at large. It's written almost like um, a sermon. You know, you can hear the inflections from the King James Bible and sort of melodic. Um, it's an incredible uh, just portrait of a world and also I think is a novel that thinks very deeply about um, the church's role in our lives and, um, and in this community. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just really enjoying it. I think he's an absolute master. I, he's, yeah, one of my favorite writers, I think. You gave me a copy of Giovanni's Room, do you remember, a few yes, years ago? Yes, I do, yeah. And it blew my mind. Yeah, it's and an amazing novel. Yeah, he's a wonderful writer. I would, I would love to read that. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, John McGregor, Teresa Q, and Roxanne Cooper at the Darby Book Festival. We had so much fun there. Josh Farmer at NTS and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch by email, litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Yes, we do. And we will try to be better about responding to emails. Yes, we apologize. We're Sometimes little, we're not the quickest. A little bit shut it up. Yeah. We're getting better. We're also excited to announce that our next show is going to be a one-off special interview with the winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction. And that is announced on the 6th of June. We don't know who the winner is. We haven't been told. Nobody's been told. But we love the shortlist so much that we thought we'd want to interview anyone who won that prize yeah, from that really shortlist. Exciting. So we're really excited about that. We're not entirely sure when that's going out, but look at our Twitter feed um, for news. And until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.